Westmoreland is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He has published a couple dozen papers on philosophy of religion and is especially well known as a theist who regularly presents difficult problems for theism to overcome. Wes, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for asking me. Wes, would you share with us your own faith journey? Like, were you raised religiously, and how did you get to where you are today? Uh, well, my dad was a pastor in what I would describe as a fundamentalist Methodist denomination. Hmm. Um, and my folks were very strict, and I got plenty of exposure to... Um, what I'd call very extreme, um, tight-laced Methodism, um, and that lasted through high school until, really, you know, until I got out of college, when I finally threw the whole thing over, and um, it was only much, much later that I felt a need to go back to any sort of church. Um, that was really after my mother's death, uh, when I felt a uh, kind of non-rational urge to take communion again. We had communion at her bedside. Um, it's something I reacted against very strongly as a young person, and many of the things I reacted against then are still things that I really detest. <laughs> and so I'm not a friend of uh, I'm not a friend of the Christian right, as you might call it. Christianity is in fairly poor shape in the United States today. Hmm. Well, on your personal website, you have a quote from someone whose name I am definitely going to mispronounce, Dag Hammarskjöld, or something like that? Hammarskjöld, yeah. Hammarskjöld. He was the first Secretary General of the United Nations. Ah, okay. Yeah. The quote goes like this, God does not die on the day when we cease to believe in a personal deity but we die on the day when our lives cease to be illumined by the steady radiance of a wonder, the source of which is beyond all reason. As an atheist, I'm not even sure I would have any objections to that quote, but what is it about that quote that resonates with you? Well, what resonates with me is probably exactly the same as what resonates with you. Mm -hmm. uh, we die when our lives cease to be radiated by that, by that sense of wonder and mystery the sheer miracle of it all. At its barest bones, I suppose that's my creed. Um, you could read uh, the Hammarskjöld quote different ways. I mean, you could read it woodenly as saying, well, you know, God is God and God exists and God doesn't need you to believe in him in order to be God. Um, so God doesn't die just because you stop believing there's a personal God. But I think that Hammarskjöld meant this other thing that you're responding to. And that's me. I'm, I'm not a person who thinks you need to believe every single thing that Christianity decided, uh, oh, what, 1,600 years ago you had to believe uh, and say you believe in order to be a Christian. I don't even think it's very much about belief, but it's much more about a certain sensibility and the way you live your life and the springs of inspiration that you choose to drink from, whether you do or do not like to sing hymns, or whether you do or do not like uh, high Anglican liturgy, as I do. <laughs> so it's much more about uh, 
what kind of people we are and, and how we treat each other and our sensibility than it is about believing a bunch of propositions. That's what I'd say. And the Hammerschild quote captures that in a kind of perfect way for me. Well, you say it may not all be about belief, and belief may not be the most important, but even Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, who I would say is probably even more of a founder of Christianity than Jesus is, uh, said, uh, what was the quote? Something like, and, and of, of all this, three things remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is not faith, but love. But love. Love. I actually quoted that at my father's funeral uh, a year ago. Mm. Uh, and that's who my dad was. He was a very loving person, and he, he gave with love to whomever. Uh, he just believed a lot of things I don't believe. Um, my mother was the was the stickler who made me not go to movies and not go to dances and not go to parties. And I once <laughs> I once heard somebody at school say, "You know, Russ wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for his parents." <laughs> this is this is not good for your parents' religion. <laughs> have uh, your kid hearing that sort of thing at school. <laughs> but no, I always said my dad was better than his beliefs. Uh. Um, of course, historically, I think Christianity has pushed much too hard on the belief side of things. I don't even think faith is the same as belief. Faith is acting as if certain things are true, perhaps being prepared to assent to certain things, but that's not the same as believing in an involuntary way that excludes doubt. Uh, I would say that faith is, has got to wrestle with doubt. And that's my contribution, is the doubt part. I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it would be horrible if everyone were like me. I mean, there'd be nobody to make trouble for. <laughs> <There'd> be, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, if there was no Dr. Craig or Dr. Copen, what would you even write about, huh? <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah, so I, I appreciate their being there. So why do you write about God and genocide or against the Kalam cosmological argument? Or you've apparently got a forthcoming paper on why a being can't be both omnipotent and morally perfect. So, you know, what's wrong with you, man? Isn't it your divine calling to defend the truth of Jesus? What good is a believing philosopher if he isn't always propping up the old-time religion? Oh, all too many people have that calling. My calling is trying to burn away the dross. Mm. I don't say that everyone should have that calling, but that's, that's mine. Mm. And I'm not very good at the other thing anyway. <laughs> In any case, I'm not an evangelical Christian. I don't think everybody needs to believe in Jesus to be saved, or there's some list of propositions that such that you're going to hell if you don't believe them, and I don't think there is a hell anyway. You know, I'm, not, I'm just not their sort of Christian at all, but I do think that there's a core there that's hard to articulate. I think the Hammerschold quote gets at part of it. Um, I think if you read the Sermon on the Mount and are moved by that, as I am, that gets a part of it, but there's a lot of stuff that has to be burnt away. Well, earlier you told me that it's easier for you to say what you think is false than to say what you think is true, and you've kind of said that again right here. Does that mean that 
it's hard for you to articulate what your positive worldview is. You just kind of have some ideas about what probably isn't true. That's that's pretty accurate, really. Um, I'm not a naturalist, a philosophical naturalist, mm-hmm. if I understand what that means. If it means that the world of space and time that is studied by the natural sciences is the whole of reality and there isn't anything else, then I'm... I don't have an argument for this, but that's always just seemed incredible to me. I have too much of a sense of mystery. So it's pretty easy for me to say what the things I reject are. It's not so easy to articulate my positives, but I feel them. Uh, When I listen to Bach, Staccata, and Fugue in D minor, I feel them sometimes at mass. I've never written about this, but I, I wonder if philosophers aren't too hung up on propositional truth. I am too. I am too. That's what I, I don't know any, anything else to do, right? Mm-hmm. So give me, give me some proposition and an argument for it, and I'll tell you whether I think the argument is good or not. That's what I do. But I do it in the service of something deeper, I hope. Mm-hmm. The figure in theology who probably been most influential for me is Paul Tillich. Now, I'm not signing on to every doctrine of Tillich's, but but I am very moved by his sermons. Some of those sermons I find just extremely moving and uh, put me in touch with something that seems real to me. But I find it desperately difficult to formulate it in propositions that I could defend in a philosophical article. Well, when you say that philosophers might be too focused on propositions, now you just sound like a continental philosopher, and we can't have that. Isn't that funny? I mean, I actually was drawn to continental philosophy. <laughs> I was hired to do existentialism and phenomenology at the University of Colorado, low these many years ago. Um, but it, it didn't go well. Um, what I found in the Continental Philosophers was a bunch of doctrines that I disagreed with. They seemed to me to be subjectivists in a, in a sense that was objectionable. They claimed to have solutions to problems or to have undercut problems that they had not undercut. My PhD dissertation was actually on phenomenology and the problem of the external world. And what I tried to establish was that contrary to their claims, they had not undercut this problem and it was still very much alive. Um, So even then, I was saying no. (laughs) I I very... um, At one point, my first reappointment decision, there were a couple of people who wanted to fire me because they thought they needed a real continental philosopher. Uh, And here I was, just giving arguments and critiquing arguments or looking for arguments in Heidegger and showing why they were wrong. (laughs) But once I got tenure, I just went to what I really cared about, which was (laughs) philosophy of religion. (laughs) And that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, and now I'm sure there are some groups who say, well, we can't have Morriston because we need a real Christian philosopher. I would expect so, (laughs) yeah. not 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 uh, major research universities, though. <laughs> well, that's good. One of the problems for Christian theism that you've been working on lately is the moral character of the biblical God. If the Bible is largely accurate about God's action in history, then it would seem to most of us modern 
people that Yahweh is a horrifyingly immoral uh, dictator. So that contradicts the Christian claim that God is perfectly good. When you talk about those arguments, what what are you talking about? What are you trying to show? Well, I probably would say just exactly what you've said. Um, I think the character who's depicted in some of these narratives is not very nice at all. But then I don't think that one should confuse faith in God with believing that everything in the Bible is true. And I think a great many people who call themselves Christians worship a book, not God. Uh, and I would, I would think of that as a form of idolatry. Um, so when I talked a moment ago about burning away the dross, that's biblical inerrancy is some of the dross I'd like to burn away. Uh, I just want to say flat out, these passages in Scripture are mistaken. That doesn't mean we should throw them away or not read them, or that there's nothing to be gotten out of them. Maybe what's to be gotten out of them is this is not what God's like, or this is what a primitive people might have thought about God, but now we know better. Uh, it's part of our history, um, but it's not some manual for living your life. If you were going to look at those genocide passages and find uh, inspiration for you know, living today, let's hope not. One of, the, one of the hardest problems I have, maybe the hardest problem I have, with people who think they have to believe that God really commanded those horrific events, if those events actually occurred, which probably a lot of them didn't or didn't on the scale or in just the way that they're described in, in those uh, Old Testament books. But people who think they have to believe that God did that, I, I want to know, you know how they would respond to somebody who today said God had told him to kill a bunch of people or yeah. do some horrific act. And it doesn't seem to me that they have any principled reason for thinking that a God who commanded these dreadful things a long time ago could not again command exactly the same. Yet I feel confident that these very same people, if confronted with somebody who, had, who said God had told him to kill Richard Dawkins, uh, would be horrified and would immediately dismiss out of hand the suggestion that this uh, was a genuine message from the God they believe in. But I wonder why. If they really believe that God did it, many times long ago, why why not today? Is the world in so much better shape now? Is, uh, <laughs> um, I wouldn't have thought so. Swinburne talks about spiritual infection represented by, say, the Canaanites. Well, spiritual infection by Swinburne's lights is, is not gone. It's very, very much present. So you'd think a genocidal command would be to be expected if if you if you thought that was the appropriate response thousands of years ago, why isn't it the appropriate response now? Yeah. So I'm baffled by the desire to believe that these things are true. Of course I don't think they're true. I'm also baffled by Christians who don't think they're true but won't say so out loud. At the recent uh, My Ways and Not Your Ways conference at Notre Dame, I, I had the opportunity to respond to uh, two uh, prominent philosophers, Richard Swinburne and, and uh, Mark Murphy from Georgetown. 
and uh, I called it the way I saw it. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it came off sounding very much like the atheists at the conference. In private, a number of, I would have said, fairly conservative Christians told me they agreed with me. Um, but, I, but I didn't hear them <laughs> articulating this agreement much in public. I think there's a lot of people who are afraid to you know, say what they really think on this issue sometimes. And perhaps it's, you know, being afraid that other people will say, oh, you're not a real Christian or something like that. I think people need to get over that and just call it the way they see it. Whether I would be a Christian or not, one thing that I would hope we could make some progress on is, you know, please, Christians, just stop defending genocide. <laughs> you know, could, could we agree on that, at least? That would be good progress to agree that genocide is wrong. Well, that would be a wonderful first step. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, re the reason the very conservative people like Bill Craig and Paul Copan, I suspect, um, are unwilling to take that step is not that they are fans of genocide. Um, it's that they're afraid that if we start throwing out this bit, then we'll throw out that bit, then we'll throw out another bit before long, you know, what'll be left of the Bible. And for them, it's all about believing in the Bible, which is, I think, their fundamental mistake. I mean, the Bible is a historical document. It has a very special status. It's hard to imagine Western literature without the Bible, uh, to say nothing of Western religion. I have great affection for the Bible. There's all kinds of literature in the Bible. Some of it is very moving and inspiring, but some of it is not. And I think we need to get over this view that this is some kind of, you know, kind of what I kind of kind of what many Muslims I think believe about the Quran. Yeah. That it was just sort of handed down by God, right? These are the words of God's self. And so there can't be any mistakes anywhere in there. That just strikes me as bizarre. The Bible contradicts itself all over the place. You know, earlier passages be corrected by later passages. You know, and on the one hand, we're told that the children will suffer for the sins of the fathers, and God will make sure this happens. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18 tells us that nothing like that is true, that we're to stop saying things like that. The, the soul that sins, it shall die. And, and that's just one example. Or take the, take the case of, oh, the need to make all sorts of special sacrifices and wear all sorts of special vestments and do things in accordance with a very special procedure. Otherwise, Yahweh will be very displeased. By the time you get to the great Hebrew prophets, you have people saying, God despises your solemn feasts and your sacrifices. That's not what God is interested in. God is interested in a broken and contrite heart. God is interested in justice. Let justice roll down like a mighty stream. Um, it seems to me that, it, you know, even leaving the New Testament out of it, we, we see a kind of moral progress in the Bible. And Christians would be wiser to think of it as the record of divine revelation that's kept by fallible human beings rather than as the revelation itself. But then I have plenty of, you know, there are plenty of things in the New Testament that I'm not happy with either. I leave the book of Revelation out. It sounds horrible. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's written, apocalyptic writing is generally like that. Yeah. Written out of a spirit of resentment against those who are persecuting you. And so you're counting on God to pay them back a thousandfold. And the book of Revelation has a tendency to read like that. Yeah, Revelation's a, a tough one. I often wonder what... I think Christians almost avoid reading it because it's so both ridiculous and awful that... Uh... Well, or, there, or there are those people who do read it and take it deadly seriously yeah. and, and are quite ready to tell you exactly who today these very symbols stand for. And, you know, um, uh, they're scary. Yeah. Um, and then we've got the, we've got people who want to support Israel so that they can, you know, bring on the the second coming of of Jesus. And yeah, I find that stuff really scary. When I was a Christian, I read most of the Left Behind series of books that takes all those bits from Revelation and crafts a fictional narrative of how the end might come. And luckily, I didn't really take that all very seriously. But during that time when the Left Behind books were bestsellers, there was a huge, huge Christian movement um, where all the Christian leaders were talking about how this was, you know, more or less really what was going to happen, and it was going to happen very soon, and we all have to be ready for the rapture. And and these are people who have huge influence on politics and policy, and that's that's a rather terrifying situation in the United States. Uh, that's, uh, that's my view precisely. It, it is scary. So... We're going to have to find something to disagree about here soon. <laughs> well, here, we can, I think we can actually disagree about the Cologne cosmological argument. What a Good. perfect uh, segue you've provided me, Wes. Yeah. <laughs> so you've written several works against the Kalam cosmological argument. In particular, I want to ask you about your work on infinity. Maybe if first you could just sketch the Kalam argument for us and then what your problem is with Craig's... Uh, denial of the possibility of the actual infinite? The three steps of the Kalam argument, as you know, are, well, the universe began to be, whatever begins to be has to have a cause, therefore the universe has a cause, and then there's some further, uh, there's some further very quick argumentation that's supposed to show that this cause is personal. I take it by the, that by the universe, Craig really means the whole of physical reality. Mm -hmm. um, but he doesn't mean to rule out the possibility of a multiverse. So however many universes there are or have been, there has to be an absolute beginning. Um, and one of the ways that he supports that claim, just one of the ways, but is uh, to claim that an actual infinity is impossible. By an actual infinite, he says he means a collection of discrete items such that the number of items in the collection is greater than any natural number. By that definition, how many natural numbers are there? Infinitely many. Um, well, Craig is not a realist about the numbers. Um, so he thinks they don't exist. So that's, you know, he's being consistent. He doesn't think there's an actual infinity of anything, but if there can't be an actual infinity of anything, then then uh, the series of discrete events that have happened in the past can't be infinite either. Um, so if he could persuade you that an actual infinite is impossible, 
then he's got you in a position where you have to say that it was the very first in the series of events. So there'll be no uh, denying the premise of the Kalam cosmological argument that says the universe began to be, or the whole of physical reality, as I'd prefer to have it, began to be. And now that's the part of the, the little part of the argument that you wanted me to mm-hmm. focus on so that we could have a little bit of disagreement. That's right. Craig's standard reason for thinking that an actual infinite is impossible focuses on intuitions people have about certain uh, imaginary examples, an infinite library or a Hilbert's Hotel. Uh, Hilbert's Hotel is a hotel in which there are infinitely many rooms, um, each room accommodates one guest, the hotel is full, every room is occupied, but this has, it seems, the absurd implication that we can make room for new guests just by creatively shuffling the guests around to different rooms. You could even make room for infinitely many new guests by having all the guests in the hotel move to the room with double their old room number. Let's suppose that the rooms were numbered sequentially from, you know, one, two, three, four, and on through all the natural numbers. Just have everybody move. Well, then all of a sudden, all the odd numbered rooms would be empty, and you could accommodate infinitely many new guests. Because as everybody knows, there are exactly the same number of odd numbers as there are odd and even together. Uh, and and that's supposedly absurd. Um, another point that uh, Bill Craig likes to stress is that you can't do inverse arithmetical operations and actual infinity. So, you know, you could have infinitely many guests leave the room, the hotel in one way. Suppose all the guests, you know, in rooms numbered greater than three left the hotel. Right? How many guests would remain? Three. Right? Or you could have all the guests in the odd-numbered rooms leave the hotel. How many guests would remain? Infinitely many. So the same number of guests leave in both cases, but in one case you, you know, have virtually emptied the hotel, and in the other case you still have infinitely many guests in the hotel. Mathematicians deal with that just by saying infinity is, you know, subtraction is not defined for infinity. Um, but Craig says that won't do because in the real world, um, you know, you couldn't prevent guests from leaving the hotel and you'd get these uh, contradictory results. I think that's a fair summary of, of his argument. Well, that's, that's one analogy that he gives uh, to illustrate some apparent absurdities in the idea of, in, of the infinite. Um, I'm not even sure he would call that an argument. Oh, I think that, I think there's an argument here. I mean, the argument is a Hilbert's Hotel is absurd. If an actual infinite were possible, then a Hilbert's Hotel would be possible. Therefore, an actual infinite is impossible. I think that's the argument. And so if you don't have Craig's intuitions about the about a Hilbert's Hotel, that argument is, is going to fail for you. Now, I'm not denying that he gives other arguments. He talks about Euclid's maxim, that, you know, the part can't be equal to the whole, and it all comes down to the same thing. 
proper parts of an actual infinite can have just as many members as the infinite collection as a whole. And Craig just finds that totally absurd. Now, which which part of this did you want to talk about? Well, I've first of all, I've never seen Craig actually present Hilbert's Hotel in that argument form, although you certainly could, as you just did. But I'm not persuaded by Hilbert's Hotel. I think there's a significant disanalogy in that... If we're talking about an infinite series of events, that's not something where we could move events around like we can move guests around in the hotel. That's a point that I've made. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think Hilbert's hotel is persuasive. What he says about what you just said is that you can mentally move them around, and that's all that's required. No, because I, I mean, mentally, I could say that uh, infinitely number there's an infinite number of natural numbers, yeah. but that doesn't mean that I think they exist and that they are instantiated, which is the kind of existence yeah. that's required for there to be an actual infinite of past events. Um, but the, the problem that I would have, and maybe you can help me work through this, and the problem that a lot of people have with the actual infinite is something like, you know, if we want to say that the universe is infinitely old, wouldn't that mean that we would never have reached the present moment? Or if we imagine walking backwards through time, it seems like we could never transgress an infinite amount of time backwards because there would always be one more step that we could take. So I think these kinds of really intuitive arguments are what persuade some people to reject the possibility of an actual infinite, even though there might be, as Craig says, a potential infinite. Like we can talk about an endless series of events might be possible but we would never actually reach the end, uh, whereas an infinite past couldn't be, because then we would have never reached the present moment. But you write a lot about that, so I'll let you... Well, my most recent stuff has actually been about Hilbert's Hotel, and that's, it's, that's the very stuff about which you and I don't disagree. Um, I'd like to come back to that, because okay. my most recent paper is, is on that topic, and I've argued that if an infinite past were impossible for the reasons that Craig gives there, then an infinite future would be impossible for the same reason. Uh, but, but let me get back to your uh, to, to what the argument that you say moves you. It's not an argument against the actual infinite in general that you're talking about. Craig gives two purely philosophical arguments against an infinite past. One of them is a general argument against the possibility of an actual infinite period. The argument that you're referring to is, uh, well, to give it a name, I'd call it the successive addition argument. Right. Um, the, the claim is that an infinite series of events can't be formed by successive addition or by adding one to another. Mm -hmm. If uh, the past had no beginning, then, so Craig claims, you know, there would be an infinite series that had been formed by successive addition, namely the beginningless series of past events, right? But since that's impossible, the past must have a beginning. That's the argument that you're saying you're somewhat moved by. Now, let's be clear about one thing. That argument is not a general argument against the actual infinite. Yes. As far as that argument is concerned, it would be perfectly possible for there to be infinitely many discrete items existing right now. Okay, That argument has nothing to say about that. Correct. First thing I want to do is to ask, what do you mean by formed by successive addition? Do you mean that uh, one item is added to 
another to those that are already there? Or do you mean that beginning with an item, you add one to another until you've added them all in? Which do you mean? Well, I'm not sure what Craig would say. Uh, when I think about uh, reaching an actual infinite by successive addition, I would say I'm talking about continually adding items to a growing set. And I would say that that yeah. set would never reach an infinite number of items. Well, you see, the thing is, the set can be growing even if the number of members of the set is not growing. And if you have a problem with that, then your problem is really with the actual infinite period. Because if you have an infinite set of rooms in a Hilbert's Hotel and you build a new room, the set has just grown because there's a room in the hotel that wasn't there previously. But how many rooms are in the hotel? There aren't any more rooms in the sense that the number of rooms in the hotel is not greater than the number of rooms that were there before you added that room. Well, let's, yeah, let's focus in on that part of it. Let's imagine we have a set of one object and we keep adding to it. How would we get to an infinitely large? Everybody, everybody knows that's impossible. If I want to, you know, set out to count all the natural numbers and I started with one, I'd never finish. Everybody knows that. So what? How does that follow that there can't have been infinitely many events? It's perfectly true, as you said a minute ago, that I can't start with what's happening now and count backwards and get to the very first one, well, duh, there isn't a very first one. But at every stage of a beginningless series, infinitely many have already been added in. You already have infinitely many under your belt. That's just the way it is. Now, now how is it supposed to follow from this that the present would never arrive? I've never understood that. Well, I think the point is that the way that we translate the how would the present moment ever arrive is that uh, since time, in the way that we're represented, it would be symmetric, not in all its physical properties, but at least if we imagine it as a series of events, just like a series of numbers, basically we could flip time around and say, look, just like we can't count forwards in time, to an infinitely distant event, we wouldn't be able to count backwards in time to an infinitely distant event. So how could we ever say that there were an infinite number of events in the past? Because we could, we, could we could never count back infinitely many events, so how could we ever say that there were that many events in the past before the present moment? I agree that I couldn't count backwards and count them all. But it's also true that if there were a Hilbert's Hotel right now, I couldn't count all the rooms. And yet you were conceding a moment ago that there could be a Hilbert's Hotel. I never thought that there could be a Hilbert's Hotel, but I didn't think that that said anything about the possibility of an actual infinite. Well, could space be infinite? I mean, is that metaphysically possible? I don't know. I think I'm... I mean, I don't know either about the possibility of reaching the infinite by successive addition. I'm very not confident of, of my intuition. You don't reach the infinite by successive addition. And the person who says the past has no beginning isn't saying that you have reached the infinite by successive addition. What's being claimed is that at every moment there, have, there has always already been infinitely many discrete events. Yep. That's why I, why I began by saying, what do you mean by successive addition? 
I mean, what do you mean by adding adding one to another? Do you mean adding beginning with the first one and then adding them all in? Well, everybody agrees that you can't do that. But that doesn't entail that there can't just always already have been infinitely many. Well, I think what I'd like to say is, Wes, it seems like you're claiming that it's possible there are infinitely many events that have happened successively in the past. Is that correct? Each one was added the infinitely many that were already there. Right. That's the only sense in which this infinite past is formed by successive addition. Yep. I think where I'm coming from is like a thought experiment. If we're thinking of time as successive events, like on a timeline, and you're saying that before the zero marker, which is now, there are an infinite number of events in the past, uh, one following the other. And what I would want to say is, if we think of a thought experiment and we work our way backwards from zero to the left, if we're thinking of a timeline, then we would never reach anything called infinity. That means that there can't be an infinite number of events in that direction. I was I was with you all the way to the part that began with that means that. I don't think that follows at all. First of all, the whole idea is you've got to count backwards to infinity. Infinity is not a number in the series of natural numbers. So if I'm counting backwards, the confusion to suppose that at some point you're going to bump into infinity, and obviously you're never going to count the very last one because there isn't a very last one. You aren't going to bump up against the very first one because on this hypothesis, there isn't a very first one. So it always ends up sound, to me, it always ends up sounding like people who are making this argument are simply begging the question against the possibility of a beginningless past. Now, having said that, let me be quite clear. I haven't the slightest idea whether the past has a beginning. I mean, I don't know. I just don't think this is a good argument for saying that it doesn't. I think I don't know is a very good answer to questions like this. And obviously you and Craig have thought much longer and much more carefully about these issues than I have. But you actually had an opportunity to debate Bill Craig about these issues. And unfortunately no audio or video has appeared that I have found. What did you think of the debate? I think we called it officially a dialogue rather than a debate. The format was two opening statements followed by a free-for-all in which we just asked each other questions for 45 minutes or so, followed by 45 minutes of questions from the audience. Mm. And yeah. it was it was a very pleasant collegial event. I was, uh, you know, I said a bunch of dumb things. <laughs> Pretty glad that that uh, video hasn't, <laughs> hasn't emerged. We had a lengthy wrangle about what what's required for a good argument, and and we went on far too long about about that. Uh. In Craig's opening statement, he really stressed the Hilbert's Hotel thing, oh, okay. um, and he gave the two points that I mentioned. And Hilbert's Hotel was the example he used. And one thing I did was to say that, you know, you can't move events in the past around the way you can move something you said a little bit ago, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You can't move past events around in time the way, you know, guests in a hotel could be moved around. So it isn't at all clear that the paradoxes of Hilbert's Hotel could be reproduced for for a beginningless past. 
Bill's response to that, as I expected, was to say, well, you can just think of them as having been in all these different moves, rooms. You don't actually have to move them. And to that, my response was, well, if that's all that's required, that we just you know, get to think of it being differently, then I have a thought experiment for you that shows that the future has to come to an end. So imagine that Bill and Wes are praising God forever at the rate of one praise per celestial minute. Okay? <laughs> and that God has determined that this will be the case. Bill will do the even-numbered praises, and Wes, given his contrarian nature, will do the odd-numbered ones. <laughs> and uh, God has determined that this is what's going to happen forever and ever and ever without end. Okay? Now, how many praises are going to be said? Now, now Bill wants to say that that's just a potential infinite, right? It's, it's always potentially infinite. It's potentially infinite in the sense that no matter how many praises you say, you've only said finitely many. And I think that's quite right. And I said so. No matter how many praises you have said, you have said only finitely many. That's that's uncontroversial. But my question is, how many praises will be said, right? Just hear the question. I'm not asking you how many praises will have been said at some particular time in the infinite future. I'm asking right now how many praises will be said, okay? And the only possible answer is infinitely many, Exactly the same reason can be given for that answer as for saying that a beginningless series of past events would be an infinite series. Okay? Now, now imagine somebody who's overly impressed by Craig's uh, animate versions on Hilbert's Hotel and saying, oh, no, this can't be right. This, this can't possibly be right because that's what will happen, but God could have arranged it differently. He could have arranged for Wes or Bill to be silent for a celestial minute between each of their praises, thereby making room for infinitely many additional praises by a third celestial being. Hmm. Right? You see what's happening? Or God could instead have decreed that Wes and Bill will cease praising after each of them after their fifth praise. How many praises will be said in that case? Ten. Or God could declare that Bill and Wes will omit every other praise. In that case, how many praises are going to be said? Infinitely many. You see what's happening. Hmm. I mean, exactly the same paradoxes that Craig claims to derive from the Hilbert's Hotel are being derived, but this time, from an endless future. So what is his response to that? His response is to say, it's not true that infinitely many praises will be said. What's true is only that the number of praises that will be said is, and I quote, indefinite. Now that's just not a possible answer here. Because on the scenario, God has determined, and I'd be very surprised if somebody like Bill Craig would say that God doesn't have the power to do this. God has determined that each of this 
right member of this infinite series will occur. I don't see how the answer to the question how many will occur can be indefinite. The only way that could be the right answer is if there's no fact of the matter about whether or not the praises will go on forever. But that can't be what Bill thinks, because he thinks that there is the life everlasting in one or the other of two places, a good place and a very bad place, and therefore an endless sequence of events. And he thinks that God knows in complete, definite detail exactly what will be going on at each of those infinitely many future moments. Uh, at one point, he appealed to his what's called presentism uh, to defend his view. Presentists believe that the past and future are not real. But, you know, that, that, that really doesn't help here. I mean, think about it. If, if, if the future series, if the endless future series of events is not an actual infinite because those events are not real, then the same is going to have to be said about a beginningless series of past events. Yeah. So where does Craig get off saying that a beginningless series of past events is an actual infinite, whereas an endless series of future events is not? So that's, that's sort of uh, how the dialectic went. That's my version of it, which is a little different from his, which goes something like this. Wes doesn't know the difference between the actual infinite and the potential infinite. <laughs> I was a little frustrated because I felt that he just hadn't really understood what I was saying. He was very nice and collegial and so on, but I think his mind was elsewhere. It was on a debate he was having on the resurrection of Jesus with some other guy in a couple of days, and I think that he, I think he really wasn't focused on, on our debate. Huh. But anyway, this inspired me to write my latest paper on this. Yeah which is going to be coming up out in Faith and Philosophy sometime, and he's been invited to provide a response. I, I, I hope that he chooses to. Really nice to see what he would really say when he you know, has taken the time to properly understand my argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's really interesting stuff. I think the real mystery here is, is God really that insecure that he needs an infinite number of praises from Bill and Wes? <laughs> Well, no, <laughs> no, but but we're philosophers, so we just make this stuff up, and we have our intuitions about these cases, you know. <laughs> no, let's hope not. <laughs> well, Dr. Morrison, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Same to you.